Well, good morning, Whitewater, and Happy New Year. That was like the same response as that this is maybe not a Happy New Year for many people. Well, it's good you're here because we're starting our series called What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. Um, and uh, I think uh, that's something that every one of us can relate to. My, um, my <laughs> We have some comedians that work up in the booth. What to do on the worst sermon of your life? You might need to get ready for that right now. Um, <laughs> we've got some. We've got some notes for you. Uh, first thing is sleep, and the, um, one of the things uh, that hit me the other day was my daughter having the worst moment of her life, or what she thought. She found out that she wasn't invited to the gals' getaway for two hours with her mom and her aunt and her grandma. It was like gals' night for the. Uh, Bedlians and they went out to go have fun, but she wasn't able to go with the gals, and she she considered herself one of the gals, and she just threw herself on the floor. Uh, this is the worst day of her life. Do you remember this, Katie? Aunt Katie, it was uh, it was terrible, and uh, she was in you know inconsolable. And uh, finally, I just said, "Hey, um, can we just be happy for mom?" And she goes, "No, I can't be happy for mom if I'm not." happy. And uh, so she was learning how to cope with the worst moment of her life. Some of you guys might have uh, had that or experienced that last night with the Seahawks. Anybody watch the game? Man, when, when Sebastian Janikowski, Janikowski pulled his hamstring, it was like he pulled the hamstring of my heart. It was just so, so rough. Um, but uh, we're, we're really glad you're here. Uh, we really mean that this is a place you can belong before you believe. And we want to help you in your journey towards Jesus. Uh, we've got so many people in our church that are new to faith or don't even uh, consider themselves Christians yet. And so um, if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to say a word of prayer and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we're so grateful for the Bible. We're so grateful for the, the lessons that you teach us and how we can translate um, stories and realities and truths from the Scripture into life, Lord. And if we, if we don't learn to love our, our world more like you love it, then, then none of this matters. And gathering doesn't matter. Uh, singing doesn't matter. Reading the Bible doesn't matter. And so we pray, Lord, that we would take uh, what we are learning together, what your Spirit is teaching us. Uh, no matter where we are at, Lord, would we become people who learn to love you and love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you do on the worst day of your life? King David from the Old Testament. He is a famous king, but before he was king... Uh, up to this point about being 30 years old, the worst day of his life probably happened around uh, 10, 12 BC. That's about 3,000 years ago. Um, David would have uh, been about 30 years of age at this point, and he had been anointed as a future king of Israel in his hometown of Bethlehem. Uh, he, he would have been about 15 years old at that point, and he was anointed and called to be king. Um, and, but, but between being anointed and becoming king was a, was a longer period of time. And at about 30 years of age, a lot had happened, and he still wasn't king at 30. Uh, he had been anointed king, and then uh, when he was younger, he, he actually killed the giant. Some of you guys may have heard the story of David versus Goliath. This is that David. And he became famous, and the king actually rewarded him and promoted him, and he became a general uh, who had victory after victory protecting Israel 
from uh, enemies like the Philistines and, and uh, other um, natural enemies that they had. And he just had victory after victory. And after time, uh, Saul became, to be, became jealous of him. The, the current king had a lot of jealousy and anger. And he ended up uh, turning David into an outcast. And David became this outcast, not yet king, because Saul knew about the prophecy, knew about the anointing, and he knew like about the popularity of David as he was having victory after victory. He was becoming more and more popular. And so he was outcast, and uh, he had about 600 men who became like really known as these incredible warriors. Um, but when he was about 30 years old, he had these 600 guys, and they settled down in uh, the south of Israel in this town called Ziklag. You heard me correctly. Ziklag. Isn't that a great name? Ziklag was the town that, that was, was between Bethlehem and Jerusalem in David's life. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bethlehem was the call and anointing of David. Jerusalem was the destiny of David as king. And between those two towns was the town of Ziklag. Uh, when you read the scriptures, and if you know Christians, most Christians probably would not remember the town of Ziklag. They remember Bethlehem, they'd know of Jerusalem, but not Ziklag. Ziklag was like the town of, of nothing, and who cares? Um, I was trying to think of like uh, maybe the modern day equivalents of Ziklags in our in our day and age, like the places where we might might live in obscurity. And so here's a few uh, places that we we found. Uh, there's Boring, Oregon. That would kind of be well boring. And then there's Hell. Hell's in Michigan, apparently. <laughs> um, I always thought it was somewhere else. Welcome to Accident. <laughs> uh, I, I like that. This is a real sleepy town here of little snoring. Um, that's actually in Denmark. Well, and some of oh, so many people are sad right now. They're like, "Why would you disparage our hometown?" Uh, the thing I, I love about Ziklag is that it, it, it's the symbol of becoming. It's the place between calling and destiny, the place where God begins to shape us and form us. And it might seem insignificant to everybody else, but it can be one of the biggest places of, of, of um, learning and character. But also for David, it was, the pla- it was the place where, well, I guess the worst thing in his life happened um, to that point. And and picking up in First Samuel, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your notes, pull them out. Um, if you have a Bible app, get that out and follow up um, behind me on the screen. But in First Samuel, it says this about David and, and the worst day of his life. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at, the, at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and into Ziklag. Uh, their, their enemies, and they had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. In verse 2, it says they had carried off the women and the children, all of their families, everyone else, but without killing anyone. They would turn them into their slaves. Ziklag had gone from this boring, sleepy little town that's in the middle of calling and destiny, nothing that special, to the worst day in David's life, in his men's life. He, think about this. He, in one day, you can imagine them coming home, excited to come back to the comforts of home and family and kids, and they hadn't seen them for a long time, and they're warriors, and they're wanting to, to just rest, and then they see the plumes of black smoke rising from their town and running up to it, just their hearts sinking 
in their chest, just falling to the ground and maybe hearing from some of the survivors of what had happened and how everything had been taken. Their homes were burned uh, down and their families were gone. Um, I don't know about you. I don't know what your ziklag may be, but you, do you have a ziklag in your, in your life? And often when we have a ziklag, we, we remember exactly where we were and, and when we were. Like when we got the phone call like the ziklag phone call of uh, it's cancer or like I'm done with this relationship. Or for me, I remember getting a phone call. It was like on a Friday. I was at the house and, and uh, it was a call from Sacramento. And the nurse that was in the room with my mother-in-law called and she said, Hey, I'm calling on behalf of the, the Nemes. Your father-in-law's had a stroke and, um, and, and they wanted to tell you, here's, here's Chris, my, fa- my, my mother-in-law. And she was on the phone and and she just told me all that happened. And um, the right hemisphere of Stan's brain had just been wrecked. And they didn't know if he was going to live or die. And I, I just remember, like, the room kind of spinning. And immediately after the phone call, I, I called Sarah's work. She's a teacher. And um, I said, hey, here's what's going on. You're going to have to get a substitute teacher. We need to get down. So I, I, I got to the school and went up to, to Sarah's room and had set everything up. She didn't know what had happened. And I said, hey, your dad had a stroke. I've got the kids in the car. I packed your bags. We're headed straight down to Sacramento. We even have a substitute teacher ready to, to jump in. And we just left. You know, everything changed in the family. And there's nothing that can fully prepare you for that. David lost all of his wealth. He lost his home. And then bigger than that, he lost his family. Some of you guys have lost some of those things. And uh, how do you deal with the worst day of your life? I'm going to give you guys three lessons. As we go through this, this series, we're, it's going to be a few weeks. There's some incredible things that we can learn. I love this story of David, and here's why. David gives us a pattern to follow. David's not perfect. He's not a perfect example uh, of a human being, but he is an example of someone who, with, when life hits, he has faith, and he knows God, and he trusts God. So there's this pattern that we can learn from him, how to deal with those moments in our life. Some of you guys may have had the ziklag, worst day of your life, worst moment of your life, or maybe worst season of your life, and it happened a few months ago, a few years ago, a decade ago, but the ramifications are still happening in your life. Like people that you know and that love, they would know, if they were honest with you, they would know and say, you have not been the same person. Like there's still a part of you that's back there in ziklag. There's still a part of you that, that hasn't got up and recovered and healed from that moment. My prayer is that we would learn to, as a community tools and a vision that we can learn through this story on how to deal with the worst day of your life. I, I would pray even if you have friends or family that are going through this that you would have tools to help them with. Or, and I would encourage you, bring anybody back that's been going through something uh, hard. They have their own personal ziklag. Bring them for this series. We're going to look at three of the lessons. There's many, but three lessons today. And here's the first one. The first lesson is weep. Weep. Um, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 3, it says, When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. I think it's really powerful that this, this acknowledgement, when David and his men 
saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families. Stopping there for a second. They realized the devastation. They didn't look past the devastation. They didn't pretend like it didn't exist and deny it and ignore it. They realized how bad it was. They went in and they, they made, made sure to know the full reality of how bad it was. Um, these are warriors. These are guys who are hardened guys. And they, they went in and they, they took scope of what had really happened. But the response is so interesting. I think um, our culture and I think church culture and I think maybe family culture could learn from this. And it says that they didn't just move on. They didn't just start problem solving right away. They didn't start telling each other how they should think and feel and what they should do. It says that they wept. David and his men, like warriors that were known for doing amazing uh, things. They wept until they could weep no more. They spent their strength weeping their loss, grieving their loss. I remember, um, I'll never forget this, uh, walking in this room when there was a, a mother who had lost her son in the most unexpected time, in the most unexpected way. He'd been on a hike and um, had fallen off a cliff. And no one would have suspected that he was going off on this hike that he would never come back home. And I remember, I'll never forget the mom just racked with sobs, like body heaving. I don't know if you've ever seen someone in that moment of loss where this the full body response is just weeping and and as she was crying her eyes were so haunting um and i you, you, i couldn't help but just start crying in the room and she was going up to the pastor saying would you bring my boy back would you pray god can bring would you bring him back would you bring him back to life and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and her response was right in our day and age, it's, there's like this desire to just move past and pretend it doesn't exist and not to cry and, just, and not, not to acknowledge the pain emotionally, to stuff it. And it would have been wrong of anybody to suggest that she not weep for the loss of her son. I had another friend who lost his son to addiction. I don't know if you have friends or family who struggle with addiction or you yourself, but just the pain that it puts the family and loved ones in, the kids and the wife or husband and the moms and the dads, and just the pain that, that that drags people through. This man had been dragged through and then lost his son. Like, like there wasn't the redeeming, you know, redeeming story that he overcame and it was great. Like he lost his son to this horrible addiction. And there was anger at the funeral from some family members. There was, you know, absence. There was ignoring. There was denying. And then he's in the middle of this and, and has never been in an environment where it's okay to, like, just cry. I remember part of the... He didn't fully heal for, like, a year and a half. I don't know if you ever have full healing where that pain doesn't go away. But, but the bitterness and anger and all that stuff, it took a long time. I remember him meeting another friend of mine. He didn't know them. But they were, they have a, a family member who is addicted and they're on that path. And it was just like, it was this moment where they just met each other. They didn't even say anything and tears came. Because they didn't need to say anything. They knew exactly 
what the other was going through, what they had been through with emotionally, the anger, the frustration, the regret, the, did I handle this right? What could I have done differently? And what's going to happen? And, and, and all of that was said in one look, and they were, and they were crying. So, sometimes we have to give ourselves permission to cry and, and, and not just walk past the, the event, the, the, the worst moment. Um, biblically, Christians, listen up here, like, it, is, it, it does not help the world when we try to pretend like the world isn't in pain. Right? The Bible teaches us this. You see that, that the godly men and women have gone before and they knew how to grieve. They knew how to weep. Abraham wept for Sarah's death. This Old Testament. Joseph from the Old Testament stories, he wept when his brothers who betrayed him came back and, and he saw them and he was able to actually weep. He left the room and it says he wept. Hezekiah, uh, another Old Testament character, wept when he got the news about his death. He was going to die. He was sick and he wept. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who's supposed to like be the foundation of the church, betrayed Jesus and when he realized the depth of his betrayal, wept. Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, um, when he was going through trial, he wept. And even Jesus, who's also in the Bible, he wept. It's interesting, it was his friend who had died. And Jesus knows that he's come to like free people from the, the bondage of death, that like death isn't going to have the final word, and anybody who puts their faith in him will have eternal life, and, and that he's going to see Lazarus again someday. His best friend, he's going to see him again. And, and it's interesting, Jesus' response wasn't, hey guys, it's going to be okay. Walk into the room where everyone's mourning and crying and racked with sobs. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Why are you crying? Come on, get happy, get happy, get happy. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a tendency in church culture to, uh, and I, I've had friends that I, I don't know exactly why, but, I, but the, they'll have the attitude of like, everything's good, everything's great, nothing's bad. And Jesus didn't have that response. Jesus, it says, wept for his friend because pain is real and it's ugly and there there are things we go through i don't know if it's cancer i don't know if it's like they're not they're never coming back again and it's a divorce it's a separation if it's a complete and utter betrayal of your marriage of your vows of your life i don't know if it's addiction that's like burning down your house but i do know that we all at some point come to a point where this is the worst moment of our life and we have zero control over it and and the, and this story is teaching us it's okay to weep and acknowledge how bad it is. Um, Jesus, it says, wept. Number three is, um, or excuse me, number two is this. Don't become bitter. Don't become bitter. When we begin to learn how to weep, we, it protects us from becoming bitter. If, if you are angry or you're, there's pent up like anger and bitterness in your life it'll begin eating you from the inside out it'll begin leading you to, down a path to become a person you do not want to become but it's like you can't help it it seems like such a strong force there's nothing you can do about it it can just seem so hard and sometimes I wonder if the bitterness and the anger is because you haven't let yourself cry 
My mom said this on a walk just like a week ago. She remember your dad had, man, he was, had so much anger and he would react with anger to things. She's like, I'm so proud of how he's learned to deal with things. And I was like, yeah, me too. He was like playing with our kids and he's just the best grandpa. And she's like, I remember one time when he was so angry and I'd seen this pattern in him. I was like, George, he's, that's my dad's name. I'm the third, the third George. She goes, George, do you just feel like crying? And he's like, yes, I think that's what I'm feeling. She's like, it's okay to just cry. But in our culture, it's often not okay for men to weep, to grieve. We don't know it. We don't know how. But the only way we can release bitterness is to actually grieve it. In in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, uh, David was now in great danger because all his men were very what? Bitter about losing their sons and daughters, rightfully so, they're, they're angry, they're hurt, and they began to talk of stoning him. Now, in our culture, in our day and age, just, you know, if you're new to faith, or you might be hearing stoning, it's not an altered state of mind, it's killing someone with rocks, okay? Um, just, to make, just to be clear on that. But it says that David was now in great danger. Why? Because of bitterness. Bitterness. Hebrews 12.15 says this, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Like bitterness is dangerous because it destroys our soul. It, it divides people. A bitter root in our life will become a, a, a dividing fruit of our life. If there's a root of bitterness, and maybe people don't see it on the, on the front end, it's just deep in there, there's like, there's there's no good will come from bitterness that if we if we let it take root in our hearts it just leads to more bitterness and and poison and it hurts relationships and lack of forgiveness and lack of ability to heal lack of ability to move on bitterness begins to destroy uh, and it says in Hebrews, if you let it take root, it corrupts many. It, it doesn't just hurt you. It doesn't just hurt that person that you love. It begins hurting all the other relationships. It begins dividing even marriages and friendships and family and, and commitments and churches and workplaces. How many of you guys have seen the division and hardship and hurt that bitterness causes? Maybe in, in your staff where you work or in your family. How many of you guys have seen bitterness at work in a church? You know, bitterness just, it destroys, it divides us, it eats us alive. And, and, and what can tend to happen is we begin recycling bitterness. Like we start being focused on it and angry and frustrated. So it starts recycling more and more in our relationships and our words and our thinking and in our hearts. And, and what, what we learn from David is that you, bitterness shouldn't be recycled, it should be retired. It needs to be extinguished. I learned this from a good friend. You become what you focus on. You become where, what you look at, what you focus with your mind and with your heart. We become what we focus on. If we're focused on what's bitter, if we're focused on the pain, if we're focused on that thing over and over in a way that's, that's negative, and it begins to corrupt our souls, our relationships, everything. And many times, like in churches or families, I don't know why it is, but the person who has a, a root of bitterness, like they cloak it in like, like I'm just being smart, I'm doing the prudent thing, and I just have a question about this. And this person, have you ever noticed? And like they can cloak the bitterness that they have 
with wisdom and maturity. But I'm telling you, bitter, like a bitter life require, it requires no maturity and no wisdom. The, the most bitter people in the hearts cannot act maturely, cannot think clearly, and have little self-control. What's controlling them? The bitterness. And sometimes we will think, oh man, the, the, man, they look so wise and their critique on this thing and their critique on that thing and their critique, man, they're really smart when really it's just bitterness. And we become what we focus on. And so we become more and more like the anger and the hurt and the frustration. And like when my daughter was so angry, throwing herself on the ground because she couldn't have this thing, the more she focused on what she couldn't have and how angry she was, the more she was just going to be lying on the floor in the mess. And friends, we, many of us are adults in here, but inwardly we can be acting like a bitter, angry child. And we will not heal. Psalms 30 uh, verse 5 says this, Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. We will go through the bitter night. We will end up in Ziklag. We will be in that, that town of becoming where we face the worst day, the worst moment of our life. But joy comes in the morning. Like We have to look beyond that. We can't just let bitterness take root. We have to move beyond. I, I, I love this quote from... Um, from Brian Zand. And this sermon series, just so you know, is, is based off a book by a guy named Brian Zand. It's called What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. And, and he, he says this in his book, don't, uh, when it's the worst moment, the worst day, don't curse it, don't nurse it, don't rehearse it. Because we become what we focus on. Instead, disperse it and reverse it. Get, a, get away from the bitterness. When we can choose joy that comes through the sadness in the dark time, then it quickens the recovery. Joy helps us get over it and heal faster. Joy helps others heal. The ones who might have abandoned you, left you, hurt you, you can help them grow and move beyond it by choosing to have joy. Instead of recycling your pain and bitterness, you can extinguish it. You can move forward to something better. You don't have to remain. And some of it you've been caught for years recycling the worst day of your life like it's this bad record. It's time to stop and move beyond. I had a friend, um, Abby Wenzel. If you guys were here uh, for over Christmas, they actually shared their story, Abby and Brandon, about how they almost lost their daughter and God did this miraculous thing. But in the middle of almost losing the daughter who was born septic, there was a moment of just like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I can, if I can handle this. And she, she went into a room by herself and was just weeping. And there was a time to cry, right? But there's a custodian that walked in and saw, and saw her and probably knew some of the situation that they were facing, and it was not looking good. And she said, no, sweetie, you don't, you don't cry. You pray. There comes a time where we need to stop just crying out and begin crying up. Right? Like, there's a time, there's a time and place for weeping and crying, but, but, but we have to move to... To, to crying out to God and crying up to Him and asking Him to come into the situation so He can come and heal. Like, stop crying, start praying in the midst of it. And I, I love um, 
1 Samuel 30, verse 6. Like, I'm gonna, this is going to be the last major thing we hit. And I don't want us to miss this. It says in verse 6, But David found strength in the Lord his God. I don't always use the King James Version, but in this case, I love the translation. It says it a little differently, but I love how it's translated. It says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He encouraged himself in the Lord. And that's the third, the third lesson. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Uh, David, before he was king, before he was a giant slayer, before he was this warrior, uh, before anything, he was a shepherd who hung out with sheep in a field and he taught himself how to play the harp. He was a musician. And, and he had a, if you're watching sheep, you have a lot of time to yourself. And as he was out in the field, before he knew he was going to be king, before he knew there were going to be all these incredible things God did through his life, and before he knew about the worst day of his life, where he lost everything, home, health, family, everything, before he lost all that stuff, he was a shepherd boy playing music. And when he would play music, he would write songs to God. He would worship God. He would train himself to focus on the Lord because what you focus on is what you become. Well, yeah, I had another friend say, what you, you become like what you worship. Psalms 42, written by King David, who was a musician and a worshiper before he was anything else, before he was king or warrior. He was a worshiper. He wrote these words. Psalm 42, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again and again and again. My Savior and my God. When He's watching sheep all alone in the wilderness, when He'd have a bear attack or a lion attack, or, you know, just when it was an ordinary day, He just learned to praise God, to worship Him again and again. And we become like what we worship. And He, he writes again another psalm. In verse 30, uh, Psalm 34 says this, I will praise the Lord at all times, the good times and the bad. I'll praise the Lord. I will constantly speak His praises over and over and over. I will praise God and learn to encourage myself in the Lord. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. You think in the moment, on the worst day of his life where he's lost everything, that he felt completely helpless. This is a guy who was born to be king, called and anointed to be king. He feels totally helpless. He feels like maybe this is it. But he has set up the pattern in his life to focus and worship the Lord. Let all who are helpless boast in God. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Are you kidding me? His home is burning. Some of you guys, addiction has burned down your family, your life, or your loved one's life. That cancer is eating away what your hopes and dreams were. Uh, the betrayal has been so deep and so terrible, like you don't even know how to recover, what your life is going to look like. The dream is gone. The buildings are burned. The family is lost. And yet David still says, come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. We live in a world that just wants to look at, here's what it is, and it's terrible. There's no hope. And David is training us and teaching us, no, 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 you're looking through the telescope the wrong way. Look at it this way. And see from God's perspective that God is the Alpha and the Omega 
Omega. He's the one who turns all that we think is broken and lost and gone, and he turns it to good. David has trained himself to have strength in the Lord. When all the men and all those guys that are warriors, they know about God, they probably have relationships with God, but none of them have trained themselves to encourage themselves in the Lord, in His grace, in His goodness, in the worst moments. I just think this is so powerful. Do not miss it. And he says, let us exalt the name together, or exalt His name together. I prayed to the Lord, and He answered me. Now listen here, He freed me from all my fears. How many of you know on the worst day of your life, the worst part are the fears? and the doubt, and the anxiety. He freed me from all my fears. In verse 5 it says, those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. This is like someone coming out of the dark night, coming out of the just, just the blackest time, the, the worst season, and then the light hits them. What happens when the light hits you? You become warm again. Life changes, and you can see reality. In the darkness, we can't see the goodness around us. When we step into the light, we're radiant. And I love that it's not like this joy comes from within ourselves and that we have this perfect way of solving things, and I can problem solve, and I can you know, go to a psychologist, and I can, we can figure out how to make everything great. Sometimes it is what it is, and life just sucks. We lose. But that doesn't mean that the sun doesn't still shine. It does not mean that God's grace is not at work. And we stand in the sun of God's grace. We become radiant with joy. How many of you guys want to exchange sorrow for joy? I want to be the kind of person that has this kind of joy in my life. I want to be able to encourage myself in the Lord. There's times where Sarah, even my my wife, I love her. I trust her beyond anything. But it can be such a dark time that I'm like, even her words aren't encouraging me. And I have to go to the Lord for the radiant sun of his joy to just bring joy back again. You're not processing this correctly were the words my friend pat heard from the doctors he had um, cancer of the blood they had tried two treatments that they said would work for sure they were like this is we normally see it work you'll be you'll most likely be fine it, the the survival rates in like the 90 percentile or higher and you, you should be fine and uh the the first treatment didn't work at all the second treatment didn't work and then the doctors are like we're really sorry to tell you but your death is imminent. Well, we're going to try one more. We're going to try one more. Um, is that Michael? <laughs> oh, there's like a nice machine here. That was good. It was timed perfectly to talk about my friend Pat. Um, it'll probably keep going. Anyhow, my friend uh, was talking with the doctors when he realized that they were trying to do therapy on him. And they told him, like, we can't find a category for you. You should not be responding to the fact that you, you're facing imminent death. You should not be responding this way. And, uh, and he's like, well, how am I responding? They're like, well, you grieved a little bit, but now you're kind of making jokes about things, and I just don't think you understand the full reality. You don't seem to be as bothered as other people are. You don't seem to be as bothered as other people are when they... Um... Thank you, Jeff. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank 
you. You don't seem to be as bothered as other people are when they're facing imminent death. And, uh, and they started doing therapy on him. My friend's a therapist. And he stopped him, though, but he's like, you don't do therapy on me. I do therapy on you. He's like, I, I, I invented this therapy. And they, they started uh, telling him, they're like, well, you know, you're, you're too happy and you're this and you're that. And, and, and they were trying to help him reframe imminent death. And he just looked at him and he said, well, how would you reframe my imminent death? How would you reframe, reframe or process the fact that uh, someday my kids are probably going to be in therapy because their dad died before they were in high school? How would you reframe the fact that my imminent death means that my wife is probably going to get remarried at some point, my kids are probably going to have some other stepdad taking them camping, I don't get to do that, and I'm not going to be able to walk my girls down the aisle and hold their, uh, their kids, my grandchildren, in my arms someday. How would you reframe that reality? You know, narrative th- therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral, like he knows it all. He's like, reframe it for me. And they were just like dead silent. He's like, maybe you're not processing this properly. And the thing about my friend Pat that I, um, I admire so much is that even dis- despite these things, the, they couldn't understand why there was still joy in his life and why he was still able to move forward. And Pat is an example of someone who's trained themselves like David. Pat is an example of someone who had trained himself to encourage himself in the grace of God. That even if, if God healed him, that would be incredible. But even if he wasn't healed, that he could look forward to seeing his kids again someday. That this wasn't the end. And so he let the light of God's joy radiate him. And uh, maybe there's someone here today that needs to just grieve, and you haven't grieved. You need to just weep. Maybe there's some, someone here today that needs to let go of the bitterness. Instead of recycling it, they need to retire the, bitter, the bitterness of their life. And maybe there's someone here today that needed to hear that you need to encourage yourself in the Lord by worshiping Him. Worshiping God. Focusing on what you focus on is what you become. Do you know who I heard that from years ago? Before they'd ever had cancer was my friend, friend Pat. He said, what you focus on is what you become. What you become like what you worship. That, that's what, I learned that from him before he ever had cancer. And uh, he lived that. And he said, you're either focusing on the grace and goodness of God or you're focusing on yourself and bitterness. And you, you, when you focus on God's goodness, you become thankful. When you focus on the bad, you become bitter. He's like, it's that simple. So friends, encourage yourselves in the Lord. Let go of the bitterness. Be willing to cry and then cry out to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Would you be with anybody who's sitting in Ziglac today? They're sitting and it's been the worst day or the worst season or the worst year. And God, would you radiate your joy into their heart? Would they choose to let go of bitterness? Would they choose to cry and then cry out to you? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.